This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Back Chat. If the Nature Podcast is the dedicated student in the library all summer, Back Chat is the undergrad using a pile of textbooks as a drinks table. This month, a nearby Earth-like planet, places to put your manuscript online, and the scientific legacy that Obama leaves behind him. I'm Kerry Smith, and joining me this month in London is Ewan Calloway. Oh, hi there. I cover um, life sciences for nature as a reporter. On the line from the seat of the US government, Washington, D.C., it's Lauren Morello. Hi, I'm Nature's U.S. News Editor. And from Boulder, Colorado, Alexandra Witsey. Yes, hi, I'm a reporter covering Earth and planetary sciences, among other things. So coming up then, Barack Obama has just a few months left in office and Nature News has been looking back on his two terms and reflecting on his achievements in science. We'll also be gazing up at the nearest star to our solar system, Proxima Centauri, where a little planet has been found. And finally, we'll be getting a rundown of all the preprint servers there are now serving science and offering up our own pronunciation guide to those confusing servers. Now, first, uh, let's turn to Barack Obama uh, as he segues neatly out of office, but not until January. Um, Lauren, is he America's most science-friendly president in recent times? I think it's a reasonable argument. Um, He certainly has, I think, talked a lot more about the value of science than any other president in recent memory. Um, He went out big in his uh, inaugural speech in 2009 when he was sworn into office and he pledged to put science in its rightful place, which I think pretty generally had scientists over here swooning. (laughs) And what kind of um, projects has he managed to put his name to while he's been in office? For most of Obama's presidency, he's had to deal with a Congress that's at best reluctant to um, go along with his proposals and at worst kind of outright hostile. It's been hard for Obama to increase funding for some of the key science agencies, but at the same time, he's launched a raft of kind of major science initiatives like the Brain Initiative to map the brain. That involves the National Institutes of Health, the National Science Foundation, and military research agency DARPA. Another project The Cancer Moonshot, it's a recent one, which is trying to double the pace of cancer research over five years in hopes of finding a cure. And then he's made some just major policy decisions, changing NASA's path to get to its eventual goal of sending astronauts to Mars um, and pushing through a host of climate change regulations. Alex, on the the changes that have been made to NASA's programs. I mean, how have things like that gone down with scientists? So uh, space is kind of an interesting example of Obama's science legacy because a a lot of space policy folks and and people who work for NASA 
um, say that Obama really hasn't gotten uh, the country pretty much anywhere farther along in terms of, for instance, sending astronauts to Mars. Uh, when he came into office eight years ago, uh, President Bush, his predecessor, was going to send astronauts back to the moon and then on to Mars. Obama said, nope, nope, not going to do that. We're not going to go back to the moon. And he came up with this plan to uh, instead send astronauts to an asteroid, um, which actually didn't go over well with scientists at all. We've had some critical pieces, including in our pages at Nature, um, about how that probably might not advance uh, science of asteroids after all. You know, we're, we're, we're pretty much where we were eight years ago in terms of exploring the solar system with humans. Lauren, I guess he's done, he's fared a little better in the opinions of climate scientists, would you say? I think so. Although I have to say, um, you know, he's starting with a just basic advantage in the fact that he's not George W. Bush, who was not very popular at all with climate scientists. Um, I think there are a lot of climate scientists and advocates who wish that Obama had tried a little bit harder to get through a comprehensive climate bill. Um, The last good chance for a bill like that was in 2010. The bill failed, and Obama had made a decision at one point early on in the presidency to spend his political capital pushing through health care reform rather than a climate change bill. Um, That said, though, after the failure of that bill, Obama kind of retrenched and he decided to maximize the power of existing laws and uh, his executive powers as president to uh, introduce new regulations to curb greenhouse gases. The downside of this is that some of these policies could be overturned by the next president with the stroke of a pen. Obama's strategy will seem pretty smart if the next president is Hillary Clinton, whose climate and environment policy is in line with his. If the next president is Donald Trump, you know, we could see a lot of Obama's gains erased. And in terms of the projects he's already launched, he's we've been talking about things he's been doing throughout his presidency. But is there a tendency for presidents at the end of their term to kind of rush through a whole bunch of stuff they meant to get done? And and if so, are there any science-based projects that Obama feels like that about? Presidents are always thinking about their legacies, and that kind of thinking intensifies as their time in office comes to an end. And it's true that right up until the last day, presidents make policy on George W. Bush's last day in office. For example, he put out a new policy for how America should operate in the Arctic, I think for Obama, they are trying to get a lot of these climate rules finalized. A lot of these things are still draft proposals, um, because once they're finalized, they're harder to roll back. In conclusion, then, would you say that he has done what he said he would do in 2009 and delivered on his plan to put science in its rightful place? I think he's made a good effort. I think he rightly comes in for some criticism on things like scientific integrity, which was a major emphasis of his administration early on, where his intentions didn't really always map out to how the administration operated in real life. There are a couple of clear examples of the administration letting politics trump science. Um, for example, with ozone rules that EPA wanted to, uh, the Environmental Protection, Protection Agency wanted to enact in 2011, and Obama said, nope, the economy is still too fragile after the recession. We can't afford to do this, even though science is telling us we should do this to improve health. I think on the whole, he's been a pretty good president for scientists, but I think that science in its rightful place pledge was a really lofty goal, and he hasn't quite gotten there. We can assure you that in a future episode of both the Nature Podcast and of Backchat that we will be returning to 
the election to see what happens to Obama's legacy as a new president comes in. Now, last month on Backchat, we talked about the evergreen allure of the space story. And haven't we got a great one for you this month? Another exoplanet has been added to the thousands found already. But this one's a bit special, isn't it, Alex? Yeah, this one is super special because it's an Earth-sized planet in the habitable zone. That means it's a place where liquid water could exist. And not only that, it is around the star that is closest to the sun. I mean, it's really only over there in space terms, right? This is 4.2 light years away. Admittedly, it would still take tens of thousands of years to arrive there. But um, it's just on our doorstep. Yeah, this is basically the exoplanet next door. If we were ever going to send an interstellar probe somewhere, this is the place we'd send it to. When you're talking to scientists, astronomers who are spotting these things, confirming the signals that they have, how do you find getting them to speculate on whether there's water, whether there's life? I mean, are they cagey and they just talk to you about spectra or are they basically sci-fi heads or somewhere in between? Oh, it always depends on who you're talking to, Carrie. Some are absolute sci-fi heads and talk about, you know, if you were on this planet, uh, the light would look like the slanting evening light of Earth. So Proxima Centauri is a is a star that's much cooler and dimmer than the sun. It's what's called a red dwarf. So the light would be reddish. So some of these scientists talk about it would be like having you know, the, the, the sunlight rays, the, the reddish tinges falling across a landscape. Others, of course, are like, well, we've analyzed our spectra and we really think there's a signal here. But a lot of them, even the ones who are not quite so eloquent about life on other worlds, will talk about what it's like to, to, to stand there and look up in the evening sky and just gaze at this, you know, very, very faint red dot and think, you know, what is it like, you know, to have what would life be like around that other world? In terms of Covering the paper, there was actually a leak, wasn't there, of the finding about a week before the paper came out. Um, Did Nature consider covering that or was it just sort of a rumour of a rumour and not strong enough to stand up? So that's right. So Der Spiegel wrote a a very um, brief story, basically uh, talking about uh, the, the, the possibility that a planet might be reported around Proxima Centauri. The interesting thing about this project is the group has been very public about its uh, its search. Uh, they call themselves the Pale Red Dot Campaign. So this is a play off of, if you remember Carl Sagan's term, the Pale Blue Dot. Uh, this was an image uh, the Voyager spacecraft took in 1990 when it turned back around as it was sailing out of the solar system and photographed Earth. And Earth was just this this pale blue dot, this tiny little moat. And it really put into perspective kind of our existence and how we're just a, a tiny little you know, flotsam in, in, in the wider gulfs of space. So this new, this new project to look for a planet around Proxima Centauri calls themselves the Pale Red Dot. And starting in January, when they began taking these very intensive observations at the European Southern Observatory, this is the campaign that actually helped them discover the planet and confirm it was there once and for all. They put everything online. They said, hey, we think there's a planet around Proxima. We're looking for it. These are the telescopes we're using. We're looking tonight. We're gathering data. And uh, of course, they didn't actually reveal their finding online. They eventually went dark and said, hey, we've got a result. We're writing it up. We'll get back in touch with you. So the the project has been very open, actually, about their search and, and, and how it's gone. So it's it's been quite interesting that there was a bit of a a leak because, you know, we sort of knew there were going to be findings anyway. And it will be really interesting in the long run to see how it holds up and and what people think about it and whether the breakthrough starshot people say, yes, we'd like to send our interstellar craft there or uh, or where we go from here. It really is 
sort of the beginning of a new you know era in thinking about life on other worlds and how we relate to that life because it's so if it exists on Proxima, because it's so very close to us. Maybe January the 19th, 2017, you know, Obama's last act will be to send a bunch of money to NASA and get them to go and explore. There you go. Now, um, our final topic story for this month is the profusion, or it seems, of preprint servers. And you and Callaway, you're here to tell us about those. Uh, just remind us what a preprint server is when it's at home. Well, preprint server is a... I guess a, a, a website where scientists post copies of their articles um, when they want to share them. Usually people do it right around the time they submit to a journal. And it was started by physicists. I think 25 years ago, theoretical physicists started a preprint server called Archive. A-R-X-I-V. Yep. Otherwise Archive. known as Archaeopteryx. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and there there it sat for a while with Archive. I think what happened was other other physics communities kind of glommed on to Archive and, you know, everything was, was working well. And then other science communities started getting into the space. Three years ago, we had the launch of BioArchive, which is a version for biology that's starting to really take off. And very recently, um, there was an announcement that there would be a chem archive. And now I've heard rumblings of a, a psych archive for psychology research and a social sciences archive, soak archive. Um, so, yeah, viva la archive. The new chemistry one is interesting, isn't it? Because it's a community that has been traditionally a little bit slow to post its results online before they get published, maybe jealously guard their their unpublished results. Yeah, I was actually surprised that, that chemists didn't. But, uh, you know, my colleague Dan Cressy reported the story and he pointed out, he reported that some of the leading journals in, in chemistry don't allow preprints at all. You know, they won't publish your paper if it's been posted to a website. So you can imagine in a culture like that, it would kind of clamp down on, on preprinting. Um, biologists have been a bit reluctant, too. For years, there was this kind of quantitative biology section on archive where you just got kind of weird papers from physicists who wanted to use, you know, quantum physics to explain some some biological phenomenon or things like that, and maybe a, a little bit of like genuine biology. And then BioArchive launched, and it kind of went in drips and drabs. Some communities like population genetics were really excited about it, um, but others weren't. And only in the last year has there been kind of a momentum shift, but they're still kind of hashing out all these issues, which is like, you know, can you scoop somebody on a preprint server? Um, you know, how do you decide who gets credit first for a discovery? How do preprint articles factor into hiring decisions for young scientists? Um, so a lot, of, a lot of stuff to be figured out before a community really embraces preprinting. And who runs and owns all of these different archives? <laughs> it, it, it differs. What's interesting about the Chem Archive one, the one that's just launched, is that the, the group that announced it was the American Chemical Society, which is a journal publisher. So some people think might think it's a little bit uncomfortable that, you know, a, a company that is publishing and making money from publishing journal articles is trying to get into the preprint business, which has kind of been previously run by nonprofits. But um, I believe ACS, American Chemical Society, said they would look for partners um, to help them get this off the ground. So, um, you know, we'll see. We should say that Nature also ran a preprint server from 2007 to 2012 called Preceedings. Yeah, Nature Proceedings. Yeah, there was this long period where a bunch of people tried to get 
preprint servers off the ground, um, including nature, and they, they never really stuck. And for some reason, BioArchive has. Otherwise pronounced BYO influx. <laughs> yeah. BioArchive, as yeah. someone <laughs> tweeted at you. Yeah, I asked people on Twitter because, you know, physicists know how to say archive, but you... One of, one of the, the more minor issues about starting a preprint server is how to pronounce it. So I remember hearing somebody call BioArchive Biarchix or something like that. What was it? BioArchix? Yeah, it was. They're kind of all over the place. So they, somebody suggested on Twitter that the about, about Us page for these sites should have a pronunciation guide, a phon- phonetic pronunciation guide. Lauren, we're about as used to writing about papers on archive in the news as we are about writing them when they come out in. in physics journals. I mean, is that true of the other archives? Or are you as an editor, are you waiting to see what the quality is before you'll completely trust uh, trust a paper on there to be decent enough to write about? I think it's true. We tend to write um, a lot more about papers on original brand archive. Probably second place goes to bioarchive. Um, I think a lot of the others are just new and as with anything that goes on any of these servers, even archive, you really have to be tough in trying to evaluate the quality of the paper as an individual paper, just because of the way these servers work. But yeah, I mean, we are very careful in deciding what we'll write about off a preprint server, just because it doesn't have that extra layer of reassurance that you would get from something that's peer-reviewed, although we look critically at peer-reviewed papers as well. If I could just jump in for a second, um, I'm going to pull rank and age on, on all you youngsters. I think so much depends on the community and how they use it. When the original archive launched, um, it actually started back at Los Alamos in the early 1990s, and the original website was xxx.lanl.gov. So we always used to call it the X-rated site. Um, But it was the place where every night at midnight, uh, all the new papers in physics, astrophysics, and so on would get published. And so at midnight Eastern, we would all get on our dial-up modems, just to pull rank on you again here, and like go and see what those papers were, because the community used it as a place to put their really, really important stuff and the things that they wanted everybody to see. Um, Other groups, you know, other communities haven't adopted it quite as much. But um, but back from that original Los Alamos days, uh, it was always the place to go. So it became established and reputable right away. Um, Ewan, were you going to jump back in on uh, the kind of pitching papers from archives thing? I'll just say that I've been I've been covering uh, I've been covering preprints in life sciences before BioArchive existed, and I think I was the first reporter to write about. Are you Are you trying to out? No, no, no. date Alex. Here. I this can't. Is, I can't. I interned under Alex. Um, no, no. All I'm saying is that you know I've been I've been covering them for a while, and initially. When I started, I was like, ooh, this is a preprint. It hasn't been peer-reviewed. I know the authors. This is a cool finding. And I got like five people to comment on the paper. And I did like my own kind of proxy peer review. And as they become more acceptable, I, I still always get outside comment for these, um, as I would with a, a, a paper published in a, in a regular journal, in a, in a peer-reviewed journal, but maybe not so much. And I more judge on things I know about the field from past experiences. You know, the ancient DNA community has started publishing things on um, on a bioarchive. And I have a pretty good tap on that field, I think. And so, you know, I, I, you, can, you can quickly tell the papers that are going to be really impo- important. One other thing I wanted to say is that, like, with biology taking up preprints, there have been some just, like, teething issues about, you know, about 
the status of a, of a preprint. And the really important ones, you know, are the issues I talked about earlier, earlier, priority and hiring decisions. That really matters for the community. But there's some other mo- more minor ones. And I'll give you an example. I was looking into a preprint. I'm not going to tell you what it's about. Um, but, like, I, I contacted the author um, of this preprint. And sometimes people don't want to talk to you because it hasn't been published. But this, this scientist happily talked to me and walked me through the results and told me all about it. And then the next day, I got an email saying from the scientist saying they, they contacted the, the editor of the journal in which they hoped to publish the paper. And the editor of the journal said that the preprint was embargoed and that I would have to wait until the art- article was published in their journal to, to write about it. And I was just like, mm, I don't think that's how it works. So either a misunderstanding of the fact that they're freely available or some kind of reluctance to accept that. <laughs> I've run into this and I think when I've run into this, reporters have come back and said, you know, that paper I found on archive or more often like bioarchive, the author said, oh, well, it's on bioarchive for other scientists. I, I'm not ready to talk to journalists about this. And I think that's a little bit silly, just kind of baked into the philosophy of a preprint server is the idea that it's out there for people to hash it over, and that includes journalists. Uh, before we all go, I really need to play a fun game with you all, and it's because of the existence of my personal favourite preprint server, Snarkive, which was in fact referred to me only earlier today. It's become a very quick favourite by our colleague Dan Cressy and others. Now, there is a game you can play called Archive versus Snarkive, and the idea is to be able to try and figure out which of these two paper titles I'm going to give you is from the real archive and which one has been completely automatically generated by a clever scientist who wrote this wrote this program um so let's have a go at a few examples and i'd like to um i'd like you to help me boost my score because at the moment i am performing below chance worse than a monkey is the performance you have to match i went over eight this morning so so here are the two titles the first one is Progress in a seesaw extension of adjoint CFTs surrounded by conifold singularities. Number one. The second paper is called Analytical Result for Dimensionally regular, Regularized Massless Master Double Box with One Leg Off Shell. <laughs> if that second one is not computer generated, my leg is going to fall off. Yeah, I, I think the first one is real. It sounds ridiculous, but it's real. Conifold singularities? Yeah. Oh. Number one. Yeah, number two is fake. Oh, you would never believe what's just happened. The analytical results for dimensionally regularized massless master double box with one leg off shell actually comes from a July 2000 paper. It's real. Uh, one more. This one's actually very short. But here's the first one. A model for bubbles. The second one is called non-commutative planar particle dynamics with gauge interactions. Bubbles are a hot, a hot topic, aren't they? <laughs> I'm going to say bubbles is real. What do you know, Callaway, about physics bubbles? I'm going for number two to be real. I'm going to, I'm going to buck the trend. Alex, you are correct. Of course she is. A model yes. for bubbles is unfortunately from the Snarkive. But earlier on today, I discovered that a paper entitled Highlights of the Theory was in fact real. <laughs> I feel like there's a class of really hardcore physics papers with very simple titles, so bubbles might, might fit in that mold. I'm not convinced on our progress there, guys. But, Alex, I think you've come out of that with the best uh, physics score, which is completely appropriate. Thank you all for joining me. Uh, Ewan Calloway, Alexandra Witsey and Lauren Morello. Uh, where can our audience find you on Twitter if they want to propose an archives and archive battle? 
I'm at Ewan Calloway, E-W-E-N-C-A-L-L-A-W-A-Y. Alex? I'm at Alex Witze, that's A-L-E-X-W-I-T-Z-E. Um, nice use of British alphabet terms there. Um, I'm at Morello underscore DC. And I'm at Minnie Kerry. If you're a fan of the show, do head over to iTunes and leave us a review or a rating or drop us an email like John Meluso from the University of Michigan just did. He says Backchat is his favourite nature show and he says if you put out episodes twice a month, I would love you even more than I already do. So we'll think about that. But everyone looks a bit tired, John, so I'm not going to promise anything. Thank you to John for listening, to you all for listening. Till next time, I'm Kerry Smith. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.